Hey, Aaron. Hi, Matt. It's July 21st, 2015, and this is the 11th episode of the Soybean Pest Podcast. We're in double digits. I know. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Wow. <laughs> Things going well. Um, and I have uh, confirmed that we actually have a listener. Yes. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, Angie. Yeah, Angie. Yeah. How you doing? Hi, Angie. She actually, uh, we were at a meeting together about a... a research extension related project that involves prairies we can talk more about that later but she said hey uh i listen to your podcast on the way to work every day or when it she drives day, yeah but, she know, has like an hour drive yeah yeah and i was like wow that's great that's exactly what i was hoping people would do with this. we see it as that's the purpose yeah yeah so, so angie this one's for you <laughs> oh that was a little bit weird <laughs> not weird not weird <sighs> nice so we got some stuff to talk about yeah this is actually more of a this is kind of a, a all business episode well a lot of it's sometimes it's time to get down to business no more hahas no more funnies <laughs> no more jokes yeah um well i have get a, to it I come on a, i had a couple Spit of teleconferences out. on monday and um Surprisingly, a lot of people are talking about soybean aphid in the north central region. And our good friend and entomologist at Penn State, John Tooker. John Fraser Tooker. He said he's also seen soybean aphid, you know, way out there. And there's even a couple, I think he said one confirmed field that has exceeded threshold already. Wow. That's not typical for Pennsylvania, I yeah. don't think. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, we've done some work with John uh, where we've given him resistant varieties and asked him to test them as part of a multi-state project. And we consistently get, like, low yeah. populations. They're just barely never. there. Yeah, and for that to show up there yeah. and above threshold before we're seeing it here is, is remarkable. Yeah. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means either. He was also, you know, really curious. Yeah. Just the dynamics of it all. But, but um, the... I think it's a sign. If it means anything, <laughs> it's a sign. <laughs> it's a sign that the aphid gods are angry with us. And yes. They're retaliating. But I think it's also a sign that this is going to be a, a pretty good year for soybean aphids. That we'll probably see uh, some fields even here reach threshold. Do you yeah. Think? So I think, you know, just talking to a few of the Iowa State agronomists and then other agronomists and co-ops and stuff, um, they're starting to see them more easily. Uh -huh. In fields, I mean, we don't have any fields that have uh, justified a treatment at this point, but that kind of raises my red flags when the aphids are easy to find. Yeah. You don't have to scout very hard and you're seeing small colonies. Yeah, my sense is that uh, you've got to first establish a population sort of around, spread evenly throughout a field. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, it's bad news bears because those populations will just start to increase. Right. And then it becomes a timing issue of, are you gonna reach uh, a threshold point at a time when the plant is susceptible to damage and it's worth spraying? And so the only way to really determine that is by scouting, right? Yeah, the S word. Oh, the S word. <laughs> Gotta scout. Yeah, and <laughs> thankfully the weather's been pretty nice this week. Uh, yes. Oh my God, it would have been miserable last week when it was like 90 plus in the humidity. Yeah. yeah. Um, Walk the beans. Take a look. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think I, I was talking to Donald Lewis. He's an entomologist in our department. And he just said from 
an ornamental point of view. He's also seen a lot of aphids. Oh on, yeah, like, this is interesting. On fruit yeah. trees and and other things, and so. Um, you know, it's just maybe a, a yeah. good year in general for aphids. You know how, like, for the last 72 hours I've been saying, there's this thing I wanted to talk about on the podcast? Yes. And this is it. This is what the is thing. What is it? So this observation that Donna Lewis has had about other aphids, and so I've seen this as well, and I think others uh, who, and there's a sad, small group of people who, you know, <laughs> spend a lot of time thinking about aphids, uh, but... One thing I've noticed, in years where we have a soybean aphid outbreak, it's not just soybean aphids. We see other aphids, other species of aphids doing very well. And the evidence for this, and it's not that I'm, you know, on my hands and knees turning over leaves of a variety of different plants looking for aphids. I'm not that. You're not that guy? I'm not that guy. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is is one guy. There is one guy, yeah. Uh, but, um, But I'm not it. But the one thing I do notice is the accumulation of mold on the tops of my cars Mm -hmm. so i park my car underneath uh, an oak tree a pin oak tree and when we have a bad aphid year um, the car collects uh, honeydew that drips off of the tree from the aphids in it and and there are other insects that do this but uh, mostly aphids some what leaf hoppers and but anyway that honeydew drips off the car and then um as I do things like bike to work or, you know, whatever, if it stays there, even for a couple of days, like I'm staying at home doing yard work and not taking the car out, a black mold grows over the top of that. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking about this with some other entomologists, and they were saying how they went to a car dealership, and they saw this as well, where they Mm -hmm. would park their cars under trees, and they would get sticky, and then the mold. the black sooty mold is disgusting. And that's from... These insects in trees dripping mold, so, uh, dripping honeydew, developing the sooty mold, just like soybean farmers see when soybean aphids get so bad yeah. that the plants get just ridiculously sticky. Mm-hmm. I've and seen it with aphids that feed in corn as well. The corn can turn black or ashy from that sooty mold. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the question then becomes, well, why is that happening? And I think one of the drivers for it is that in years where we see a lot of aphids, one of the factors that contributes to that is we didn't have a lot of lady beetles, especially in the spring, that survived the winter, that fed on them in trees or buckthorn or whatever before they moved to crops like soybeans or, mm-hmm. or corn. Um, and when you don't have that, you get just this general buildup of yeah. all of this uh, prey that mm-hmm. the lady beetles would have fed on. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think some of us in entomology um, have been thinking, contributes to this on-again, off-again cycle. You go a year where you don't have a lot of predators overwintering, you get an outbreak. As that outbreak builds up, you develop a population of lady beetles that overwinters and then keeps the yeah. the outbreaks from happening in the previous year. Yep. But then when there aren't any aphids, those predators die off, and then you get an outbreak the subsequent years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that classic wolf what deer you know cycle or wolf uh, Mm -hmm. predator prey type yeah yeah Yeah. but played out not over a season but over multiple seasons right yeah well other other states see that on again off again cycle maybe a little more strongly than we do but i definitely think there's just more observations of aphids not only field crops but everywhere this year so there are conditions that are favorable for aphids yeah all kinds of plants so it's uh We've got a year where it looks like you said conditions are favorable. We're going into a period where 
the weather's pretty favorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, mid 80s. Yeah. Um, not a lot of rain forecast. Um, not a lot of humidity. So it's good, things are going to be a bit dry. Yeah. Um, that's going to be favorable for the aphids. Yep. So, yeah, if you're a soybean farmer. Yeah, or you scout soybean. Um, that's probably your number one priority, I would think, at this point. Or if you own a car and you park it under a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Park somewhere else. (laughs) Clear out your garage. You may ask, why don't I clear out my garage? And that's a subject for another podcast. That's not not something I'm prepared to talk about right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also besides aphids, there's more. There's, There's, you know, we've talked about caterpillars, a couple different times this this podcasting season but um, I've noticed it as well and a few of the agronomists have noticed more green clover worm than we've seen in normal years and I I kind of talked about their their feeding earlier but some fields are reaching 10 20 percent you know of the plants infested so this is soybean and uh, it's throughout the state or? it would mostly be the northeast and northwest corners that I've been okay. hearing about it and is clover worm one of these migrating as moths far, or I think it overwinters here in debris uh-huh. um, but I you know I don't know for 100% sure hmm. there's a lot that migrate and some that overwinter I'm not sure about green clover yeah. worm but it's a it's more than just one species it could be yeah multiple things yeah but either way, we're seeing a lot of it. Yeah, so they're just they're the defoliation that they cause is really noticeable because they feed in the upper canopy. So sometimes plants look more injured than they really are. And if you're scouting for this, are you scouting for the defoliation or for the clover worm or both? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were if you're noticing the defoliation, you're seeing green uh, caterpillars out there. I mean, it doesn't really matter at this point what caterpillars are there. But if you're noticing defoliation. Uh, a general rule of thumb is if you are exceeding 20% at this time after bloom, then a treatment is probably warranted. 20% of the leaf area removed. Yes. I mean, that would be... You don't want to exceed that because yeah. then it's going to affect yield. Yeah. And you, in, in, especially if there's like corn earworm and so, I mean, they can clip pods. Grasshoppers and other things can clip pods. Yeah. So you'd want to minimize that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about the pod clipping. That would be yeah. a bummer. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's direct injury. That's a worst yeah. case scenario. Yeah, uh, so soybeans can take a lot of, 20% looks like a lot of damage. Yes. And soybeans can They'll take look shredded. a lot of damage. But it's still, you know, even the 10 to 15% will look bad, but it's not enough to reduce yield. Right. I mean, um, the, the, the leaves themselves, the plant can stand a lot of defoliation of the leaves, yeah. but you never want to get it to where they're damaging the seeds or the, or the pods. Yeah. Um, are we good with that? Yeah. Do we cover that? Yeah. So we got a little bit of time. Yeah. Can I talk about something that makes uh, has me kind of excited yeah. and interested. So I've been talking about a project on again, off again throughout the uh, our podcast uh, about the work we're doing with bees and soybeans, and been working with uh, another faculty member here, Amy Toth, and uh, we've got a group of scientists, a postdoc, a couple new graduate students. Um, asking different questions about how honeybees interact with soybeans. Because there's some evidence that honeybee yield, I'm sorry, soybean yield improves when honeybees visit the flowers. Um, I could talk more about that later. But the other side of this is how are honeybees using soybean? Is it, mm-hmm. Does it affect their health? Is it a valuable forage for them? And one of the ways that we answer that question is by putting a trap on a honeybee hive that pulls the pollen off of the pollen baskets, these little uh, divots in the legs of the honeybees, and 
you pull that pollen off as they go into the hive, and then you can analyze what that pollen is. And you can measure how much pollen they're collecting, the different species. Uh, it's really kind of fascinating. So we have a graduate uh, group of graduate students, and one of them, um, uh, he just arrived from China. I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Gu Zhang. Uh, we gave him this aspect of the project. And he's been collecting uh, pollen from hives at multiple farm fields and then painstakingly going through and uh, looking at the pollen and uh, both by the color and then under a microscope by the shape, its morphology, determining what species it is. And he's found uh, soybean pollen on these uh, collected by honeybees. And what's really interesting is pretty much every hive that we have put out has, at some point they've collected uh, soybean pollen, mm -hmm. if there were soybean flowers there. And when we did this experiment, we set up uh, fields that were surrounded, we put honeybees out in fields that were surrounded by just corn and soybean, nothing but, right? And then we had other fields where there was, they had corn and soybean, but they had other things as well. More diverse. Yeah, yeah. Which one do you think uh, had more, which, which hives in which landscapes had more, collected more soybean pollen? My intuition says when there's a less diverse landscape. Bingo. Bingo. Uh, and the, But the, the kind of fascinating thing is that even in those complex landscapes where there were other things for them to forage on, pretty much every hive uh, at some point had gone into a soybean field. Okay. Um, but just not, they're not collecting as much. Yeah. Um, so it's still early. You know, we're, yeah. this is, I mean, we're only into, what, the second, maybe third week of bloom for yeah. bees. Yeah, and you're already generating data like that. Yeah, it's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it was really, uh, that, that was exciting. Because uh, I was like, wow, I don't need, you know, if you talk to breeders, they're like, you know, soybean doesn't need to be uh, pollinated. It's self-pollinating. But it's like, yeah, but that bee doesn't care. You know, if it's producing pollen, they'll go and get it. But these are tiny flowers and they're not bred for producing a lot of pollen. So yeah. I wasn't sure that we would see anything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure enough, we're seeing something. So that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. and, and it's still early and all, but uh, yeah, it was just kind of made me happy. Yeah. <laughs> Be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you have a couple of events coming up, don't you? Well, I just, one on the calendar next week, July 28th, the Practical Farmers of Iowa are hosting a field day that involves the topic of pollinators and this is at uh, Mike DeCook's farm. Uh, if you go to PFI, if you're a PFI member, uh, you probably already know about this, but if you go to their website, uh, I think you can find info on this. Um, I'll be talking a bit about some of the pollinator work we've done and talking about pollinator conservation. There'll be other people talking about prairies and kind of diversifying a landscape to help pollinators. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. PFI. All right, yeah. yeah. Next week. I think we meet again next week. Can't wait. Okay. Bye. Bye.